For many of us, our relationship with Google is almost synonymous with our relationship with the internet. You know, email via Gmail, all our corporate information on GDocs, of course, all of our personal and business searching information. And it's come out recently that, of course, the NSA has access to all this. Now we know that. But it might be that other people want access to that information, too. And we're going to talk about some of those things today with Gabriel Weinberg, the founder of DuckDuckGo, a search engine that offers real privacy. We're going to talk about what real privacy means today, what Google knows about us, and plus a bunch of cool startup stuff. Gabriel Weinberg is also an angel investor, and he's taken investment from some of the most famous venture capitalists in the world. So we're going to talk about what it's like to have that red phone and what it takes for young founders to get out of the blocks and have a successful startup. On a purely procedural note, the show notes to this one are at tropicalmba.com slash duckduckgo. And I noticed something the other day while, while I was walking down the street. On the iOS, at least, if you have an iPhone, you can click the logo to this podcast and see all the show notes. So you could check out Gabriel's Twitter profile. If he mentions an article on this podcast, you can click on the link right on your phone. Also, we'll provide a link to the comments so you can go right into the comments and ask us a question We'd love to hear from you. Anyway, I'm about to hop on a plane to see the boss man and the whole Tropical MBA team, as well as a bunch of DCers in Austin. I'm excited about that. So we'll have boss man on the show next Thursday morning. If you'd like to comment on this one, it's tropicalmba.com slash duck, duck, go. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. My first question comes up about motivation. And you've written that part of what keeps you motivated is that you feel like you're on the cusp of something really big. And I'm curious as to like in your mind right now, what do you feel like you guys as a company are on the cusp of? It's interesting. I never felt this notion of of thinking about doing really big things until this startup. And so my last startup, you know, didn't even have any employees. And it was a decent size exit for us, but I wasn't really thinking of making a dent in the universe in that way. But then I really started coming around to that. And since doing DuckDuckGo, I really do feel like that's motivated me and being on the cusp of something big. And so to answer your question directly, you know, we're close to getting 1% of the general search market. So DuckDuckGo is a search engine, for people don't know, and, you know, can switch to it from Google. And 1% sounds quite small, but in the search market, that's actually quite meaningful. And no one's really achieved that organically, you know, really since Google. And that's been the goal for the last many years. I started the company in, in 2007. And it's really in sights now. So I feel like we're getting close. I mean, we're probably a factor of two away. So let me ask you this. I just switched over to DuckDuckGo 48 hours ago. You know, I'm not <laughs> super nerdy. I've managed to put it into my, like when I hit Control T on Chrome, now I'm searching with your product. I'm curious from your perspective, what's going to be the net result for users that switch over to DuckDuckGo? Like, what are some things that are going to change in my daily life? So I look at it as 
and this is kind of how I approached it initially, I could be more nuanced here. So you use different browsers. So what browser are you using? Chrome, like for Chrome. the most part? Yeah. So people, you know, have pretty tense affiliations now between Chrome and Firefox and Safari. Maybe in some circumstances, i.e. <laughs> but but generally, the, the rendering of the web pages are all the same. Little nuances here and there. But essentially, you're getting the same thing if you go to like New York Times or something. And so you got to wonder like, okay, well, why is it different? Some people like the speed or some people like the design. And that, that was kind of my thesis for search engines is that getting the good link results was becoming commodity. And that would be the metaphor to the rendering engine. But there was a lot of room to innovate around the edges and create an experience that different, you know, significant percentage of people would prefer. And that, you know, Google has to pick one experience, but there are others, you know, that people would like. And so then I eventually shifted into a thesis of oh, let's concentrate on things that Google, you know, can't do easily to really differentiate out there. And so those, those have been four things. So to answer your question, these are the kind of things you would expect different. One is privacy, which a lot of people know about us. You know, we don't track our users. You get what we kind of call real privacy if you switch to us. The others are, one is more obvious now, we just had a redesign. So you're coming to us fresh. So you probably didn't see us what we looked like before. I Maybe did. That's a good thing. First thing I noticed is that you have infinite scroll, which is super useful to me. Yeah, infinite scroll and just in general, less clutter. We're just web search, and so we don't have to push things like Google Plus and you know that kind of stuff. And so we're hoping just the design appeals to people. It's really more like kind of an Apple aesthetic, but a kind of a lighter, cleaner design, more fun. So that was the second one. The third was less spam. So this one's harder to see immediately, but we aggressively ban content farms, things like demand media, that kind of thing. And so you'll see that less of that on our site. And then the fourth has been our main product differentiator over time, we believe is going to be instant answers and smarter answers. And we've taken a, an open approach as opposed to kind of Google and others closed approach. And by that, I mean, you know, when Google creates answers, they create them all themselves, they buy companies or data for them. And what we've done is we've open sourced the entire platform. And we literally have hundreds of sources there. And any developer across the world can help create an answer. And even non developers can suggest ideas and sources and features. And so what that means is very niche, you know, answers can be created, like, you know, Pokemon or Lego parts or bioinformatics. And over time, we hope we go from hundreds to thousands of instant answer sources. And for different communities, we're just going to be better. So like, you know, we've been kind of on the cutting edge of Bitcoin stuff recently with the Bitcoin community creating good instant answers. And if, you know, if you're into that kind of searching, it should be better over time. I'm curious, you know, you've kind of come out publicly and said, like, I don't put eHow on DuckDuckGo. And that's something that like Matt Cuts and like the Google crew has never really done. Like you said, like, they're kind of like this veil of secrecy, this black box. Is that going to cause problems for you when you become like a bigger player in the marketplace? Do you foresee problems there? Or do you think you can just keep going out and just saying like, nope, demand media, you're just out of my engine? It's just something that is sort of shocking to hear from a search engine. For the most part, you know, 1% is the 1%. And so people don't seem to care, except the people who use us, which who do care that it's not in there. I mean, most of our, our spam blocking is algorithmic just because there are literally like tens of millions of park spam domains and other just ridiculous domains that are impossible to block manually. But there are some really big players that, you know, you do want to manually block. They're not that many, but they actually make an impact on the site. We've been basing it on complaints and our own investigation. So it's quite possible that, you know, things could change if things got better in these some of these companies. But they're obvious decisions, I'd say. And I don't, I don't foresee us getting in trouble. 
what does Google know about me? So like I just switched over to DuckDuckGo 48 hours ago. How is my like profile gonna be different to the deep web or whatever? And along with that, how do you protect DuckDuckGo users downstream? So like you're still partnering with Bing and Google. They don't get any data coming from you and I'm 100% clear or does the NSA still have some kind of back door into this whole thing. I mean, what's your perspective on that? I know that's a kind of a giant question, but I'm just curious as to- Yeah, there's a lot there. Tell me what the know. NSA is doing first off. Number two, I want to know what Google knows about me. Let me take the, the last first. So, you know, we use, like I was just talking about, hundreds of sources for results and instant answers and links. Each one of those we proxy through our servers. So when you get results loaded at DuckDuckGo, you're still completely anonymous to all those upstream providers. So everything's riding through us, and we're not saving your personal information, so you're completely anonymous. When you leave us, you are subject to the privacy policies of where you're going. We try to do things that can still help you there. We strip the search term from the referrer when you click on the links so that they don't just get what you're searching. Mm -hmm. We try to send you to uh, encrypted versions of sites where possible. We use EFFs, HTTPS everywhere, rule set, which is additionally an add-on I suggest everyone get. It's pretty seamless. It just sends you to encrypted versions where available. What's the name of that again? HTTPS everywhere by the EFF. They're a nonprofit. You know, we also offer kind of more esoteric things for people who are interested, like Tor is an anonymous browser, and we have a Tor hidden service. So that's on our end. We basically do everything we can to keep you anonymous on our site, and we're doing more and more on our site with instant answers. On the Google side, I mean, people don't realize how much they know about you. So people are like, okay, I'm searching on Google. They know my searches. They save those. That is definitely true. What people don't realize is, you know, they run four of the biggest ad networks in the world. So AdWords is the one on Google, but the the other three are not. One is AdMob. That's on mobile almost, you know, tons of apps run AdMob. Mm -hmm. AdSense. Millions of sites run an AdWords kind of equivalent called AdSense. And I'm sure a lot of people probably listening here are familiar with that because they make money through it. DoubleClick, which they bought many years ago, which doesn't even look like Google. It's like banner ads across the web. Right. Almost any site you visit has some Google ads. So they're they're actually capturing your entire search browsing history in addition to just things you type into Google. But that's really not all. <laughs> they also, you know, run Google Analytics, which is, you know, a company they bought a few years ago, and now they've given away for free as kind of a lost leader. That's on even more sites than the ad network. And then recently, you know, they Chrome has started taking over uh, a lot of browser share, and they also run a public DNS service, like where you're actually looking up web addresses. So if you add all that together, they basically, for many people, know everywhere they're going on the internet, most of what they're clicking on, a lot of their ad click history. It's essentially as much as you could know from any one company. I'm curious, when I clicked into Chrome to switch my default browser, DuckDuckGo comes up as a suggestion. Maybe this is a simple question from your point of view, but I'm curious as to why is Google serving up their competition as a result? Why are they serving you? And what, if any, is their sort of official stance towards DuckDuckGo? What have they said about you? My sense is a lot of Google employees probably use it and sort of wish they were in your office. Do you get that sense? Or, I mean, you're kind of like, huh. you've got that googly vibe. I don't get that sense from Google employees. <laughs> <laughs> to answer your Chrome question, though, the only reason that was in there is because I think you had come to our web page and it kind of gets automatically populated, but we're not included as an option in Chrome. And in fact, it's actually the hardest one to switch. It's the only one that's not programmatic. So 
all the other browsers, we can basically get you a one-click install of DuckDuckGo as your search engine. But with Chrome, you had to follow those kind of directions, even though we tried to make it easy. In terms of the other question, I mean, they have actually mentioned us in their public blog posts as competition. And I know in private, in Washington as competition and kind of the antitrust backroom stuff. It's hard to take that somewhat seriously because we are so small. Right. <laughs> but they have definitely acknowledged us publicly and privately. Let's talk a little bit about money because my impression is that you walked into this thing with enough money to fund your lifestyle. And so it informs some kind of cool strategies. So on the backdrop of like, how do you make money? Because you have over 20 employees now, I think. I'm curious about some of the strategies that you've taken that are sort of, they're similar to what a lot of people in my community do. They take on big incumbent companies because they only need to make a few hundred thousand dollars a year. So screw it. We won't track your ad clicking behavior or screw it. We won't fill up your search results with ads. I'm curious, like how conscious were you about this? I don't need to make money approach and, and what kind of strategies has that informed when you're taking on these, these big incumbent players? Yeah. I mean, I definitely set out without a business in mind, you know, for this project I and mean, it kind of evolved into that and so i was really building the search engine you know that i wanted which included less tracking and less ads and haven't thought too much about monetization you know we make money now via minimal advertising but i view that as kind of yes in answer to your question like that's how i'm thinking about it and you don't have to take over the world and make the most money possible because it's already a lucrative market and you can get away with being a small part of the market and doing things more from the user perspective and still make money. I view it as more the Craigslist model, you know, which is the traditional shrinking the market model where you take a big market that in that case classifieds, make most of it essentially free and take market share that way, but still run a successful company. It just doesn't have to be 50,000 employees like Google. Are you yeah. able to cash flow your employees on your revenues? Or are you depending on the investment that you received? We are at a break-even point now. So yes, we can sustain ourselves indefinitely. To your reference point, we did take venture financing at the end of 2011. But we have really good patient investors who are totally in line with you know the kind of thinking we're talking about here. You took money from Union Square, right? Yep. Took money from them. <laughs> I don't have any access to these kinds of people, but I read their blogs and sort of lionize them in some sense. And, and I'm curious to hear from the inside. You know, I've read the Twitter book and some of these other things like these guys are super hardcore sociopaths and pushing everybody around. What has been your impression of taking money from venture capitalists and how has it affected the way that you have to run your business? Did you have to make a lot of concessions or are they kind of investing in you like, hey, this guy's experienced, just here's the money have fun it's been a lot of the latter we've talked about like how in my previous stuff and i didn't really have investors and so this is really my first experience with venture investors and i think it's an outlier i have heard some horror stories from other people but union square is yeah totally been you know hands off completely supportive i've you know haven't had to change anything about my vision or anything really if you can, like you said, take money from Union Square. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, for, for, for them, I mean, from their perspective, are you a, a vanity project? They just want to be involved because it's cool? Or do you guys have like some kind of cash event that you're groping towards in the next five or 10 years? No, I don't think we're a vanity project in the sense that I don't think they just, they don't do vanity projects. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, I think the reason why is that the search market is really the biggest market on the internet. So if you can get 1%, and we think, that we can easily, you know, are on a path to 5% with the value propositions we talked about earlier. Even if you try to maintain privacy and all the things we're doing, 
that's still a very lucrative business. So yeah, if we can keep executing it, I think it turns into a decent sized business. Would it be feasible ever for Google to offer the same level of privacy that you do? Or can you get that from Google? You just got to jump through hoops. I don't think it's possible, in all honesty. And it's because um, of their, their dedication to serving accurate advertising? Yeah. That's a very kind way to put it, too, their dedication to serving. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I think a lot of us, you know, a lot of search marketers in my audience, and, you know, it's sometimes you only see two organic results on a Google result page for a product search term. It's been monotonically increasing as well. I mean, there's plenty of interesting presentations where people have used the same commercial term and taking screenshots 2004 through now and it just gets bigger and bigger. So I have a lot of questions about your team and your community and also your your book but I want to ask about blogging because this is how I initially heard of you. It's like there's this guy in Pennsylvania, what's he doing? And I've been reading for a long time. You know, there's this there's this kind of back and forth about should founders blog? Is it even feasible? Is it small time? And everybody kind of has an opinion. You seem pretty dedicated to it over the years. I'm curious as to like what value has recording your progress and your opinions brought to you? I did write a post on this a while like a few years ago. And I encourage anyone to kind of look it up because I don't know if I'm going to do it total justice. It was called like Why I Blog. I started in fits and start. I had blogs before my current blog all the way back to like 2001. And I always kind of let it go. And I didn't do it regularly enough. And then in 2010, I made it like a news resolution to really put out a thoughtful post a week. And I kept that up. It really paid off for my thinking in general. Like, and that's the main benefit I feel on it is taking an idea and putting it to the blog and publishing it really forces me to think through it. And I feel I've gotten a lot of benefit from that. I've been following, you know, Jason Cohen recently wrote that I sometimes feel like this, that like all the coolest stuff that he's learning, he can't blog about because, you know, he wants to make WP Engine a success. I'm assuming there's a lot of things, too, that that you can't share on your blog. Who are the people that are out there like walking the walk that you follow? Who are the opinions that, that you seek out on the web when you're reading blogs? That is a good question. You know, I have turned a lot to Twitter in the last couple years, and I feel that I've been reading less blogs, and that's probably not a good thing. <laughs> but I feel a lot of it gets filtered through Twitter. So I'm having trouble naming names. I'm putting you on the spot. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, I've followed and liked, I'm going to mispronounce his name, and maybe you remember it. He's a VC at Redpoint, Tom Tognus. He's got a good blog, and I usually read everything he writes. And there's another guy, Elad Gill. I think he's a big corp dev at Twitter. He also has a really good blog. But I carry my Twitter list pretty tightly. So if anyone's really curious, go to Twitter and look at who I'm following. So I think that that's actually a pretty good seg into the book that you're launching, which is the Traction book. You know, you're basically saying that the biggest mistake you're seeing, you obviously do a lot of speaking and mentoring and stuff. You're also an angel investor. Maybe we can you can mention some of the things you're involved in there. But in the book, you guys say that the biggest mistake startups make is that they fail to get traction while they're developing their products. And I think it's kind of interesting, like over the years, you've boiled things down to distribution. And now you're sort of boiling things down to traction. There's sort of similar ideas in some ways. So I'm curious as to like what you see as the contribution that this book is making and why you guys decided to put the work into it. Yeah, so I mean, I see distribution as track. They're basically synonyms to me. But so this started actually five years ago when you know I was starting to try to get traction for DuckDuckGo and I was starting to angel invest and seeing startups you know that I invested in or advising struggling with traction. And 
the pattern that I unfortunately seen again from afar more and more is just people took to lean startup and kind of ideas that come out of that, which are pretty good in terms of building a product that you know people are actually going to want. But the reality is, is people get to launch day and you know they they succeeded in that their beta customers like what they're doing, but they don't get immediate hockey stick kind of growth that you need to raise money. And unfortunately, most people are not in the situation that I was, where I could self-fund it for years. And what often happens is they go out and try to raise money because they need to, and they, they don't have the traction they need to raise money, and they can't get investment, and the product dies, and the company dies. And what's the saddest part about it is that the product was actually good. You know, They did customer development, and the beta tests worked, but they just had no idea how to get sustainable customers coming through and making it grow. And so our, our, my main takeaway was that you got to start that earlier trying to figure out what exact market niche you're going after, what the messaging is, how much our customer is going to cost to acquire, kind of what is their long-term value and which channels can you use to acquire them sustainably. And if you do that, then the day you launch, you can start taking off, get the traction you need and get financing if you need, which is which is honestly what a lot of people do need. I see. So, so this is like, you know, what Lean Startup is to product traction is to, it's sort of like a sales book in some ways. Like in our community, we might call it like, this is a book about hustle. People kind of drop, they don't have the hustle muscle built. They don't go out there. One of the things you mentioned is taking advantage of micro opportunities, for example. I'm curious, is like, can you identify some examples of micro opportunities? I mean, you're absolutely right. So the, the other kind of thesis and related also micro opportunities is that there are, we identified 19 different kind of marketing channels, right? That startups use successfully to get traction all over the map, whether they're consumer or business. And unfortunately, kind of the second biggest mistake, even if you go start trying to get traction, and I made the same mistake with DuckDuckGo, is you pick the wrong marketing channel. Like I started trying to use SEO to get traction for DuckDuckGo, believe it or not, because that's what I knew. And that's what you mainly see is people are experienced in some area and they just go after that. Or they say that their effort is, oh, I'm going to put up a few blog posts or post a Hacker News or some other community, try a few Google ads. I'm going to go viral. <laughs> I'm going to go viral. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just not a good structured approach. And so the kind of the approach that we recommend is kind of get over your biases and more systematically go through all the marketing channels you could possibly use, try to identify which are the most promising, which are probably some you haven't thought of, run some tests, you know, get some real numbers to it, and then focus on something that is really promising. To the point about micro-opportunities, when you first start out, a few customers, depending on what you're doing, really move the needle. Micro-opportunities are things that come along like news cycles or as an example for DuckDuckGo as a couple, you know, Reddit first started allowing advertisements and we were one of the first advertisers. And whenever there's a new advertising platform, the click-through rates are amazing. I remember amazing. that. I remember that. Because <laughs> it was it was a story too that you were even advertising there. Exactly. Like everybody clicked so, on like, to see yeah, what was up. That's a perfect micro opportunity. Another even tiny one was, you know, where your company is DuckDuckGo and one time there was, I forget exactly what the Twitter trending topic was, but it had Duck in it. <laughs> and I quickly just dropped everything, coded up a microsite related to that trending topic and kind of got it going and you get, you know, insert yourself into it. But the micro opportunity is something you see that could get you traction and you kind of are able, because you're a startup and nimble, to drop everything for a day or two and try to seize that opportunity and get some customers that way. Even though it's not sustainable or scalable, 
at the early stages, it can really kind of jumpstart what you're doing. So you guys have this thing called the law of, of shitty click-throughs. Are you familiar with yes. that? Okay, so I'm curious as to what this means in relation to traction. I mean, this was kind of a curious idea to me. So if you could elaborate on that a little bit. This phrase is credit goes to Andrew Chen. And what it means is very similar to the Reddit thing is that, okay, a new marketing channel comes or you start to explore a new marketing channel working great for you. And, you know, it works great for a while, but ultimately it saturates either because you've saturated it or, you know, competition comes and increases costs for everybody. But the law of the world of marketing is that <laughs> things that work don't work forever. This is true independent. Even if the marketing channel is awesome, usually you as a company get bigger. And that's what's happened to DuckDuckGo. Because the search engine market is so big, you know, we started at like 10,000 searches a month. Now we're at like 150 million. So that's many orders of magnitude, right? Right. And almost every order of magnitude, the user acquisition strategy we were using in that previous one stopped working. And it's, it's related to this law. And so it's enabled us, I mean, it's forced us really to go back to the drawing board essentially and do that framework that I was laying out earlier, we call it in the book Bullseye Framework, where you find a new marketing channel that works and you go back and you run the tests again. And so we've moved from SEO, I mentioned at the beginning, to this Reddit thing we were talking about, social and display ads. Then we did content marketing, then we did print PR, then TV PR, and now we're on to business development. So it's really like the sixth different channel we've been focused on. I like this because, I mean, the bullseye framework was interesting in particular, the graphic you had of the spreadsheet there, because, you know, a lot of us entrepreneurs, we love the laptops, we love the internet, we love kind of hiding behind them. And, you know, you have a spreadsheet in the book that's basically like a systematized approach to outreach. And it can bring a more a systems approach to doing scary things, which is asking people to help you promote your product. I think that what I'm finding interesting here, and I know a lot of people in my audience have that problem. There's a lot of people that are asking themselves if they've got the right stuff to be a successful entrepreneur. And you've done angel investing and done a lot of mentoring. And I'm curious if you've seen people go from foundering to success and what kind of transitions people need to make in order to become the person. You know, I'm sure when you make investments, you kind of see the product, you shake the person's hand and you're like, yep, winner. Have you seen people make the transition from kind of hapless to winner? And like, what are the evolutions that they go through as founders? Yes, definitely. I think a lot of it is kind of this bias that we were talking about earlier and self-confidence and experience. And so you were just talking about like outreach. And I think what you're saying, which is what I believe in, is one of the reasons people focus on product, the expense of traction is, you know, product is you're sitting in a room working on your product. Right. <laughs> you don't have to go out in the real world and, you know, make sales calls and things like that, where you can get rejected, you know, by someone who's sitting across from you. And that is scary. But at the same point, that might be the thing that, makes your startup take off. What this approach is and what I've seen is, you know, there's a point at which you have to face yourself and say, do I want to face my fears and, you know, do this? A marketing channel say that is not in my personality or or I don't have experience with, it doesn't feel comfortable, I have to get out of my comfort zone or do I want to just stay in my shell and just have it not grow? And I think when people choose, you know, they want the best, they built this product, they want it to see, have the biggest impact on the market they realize that they have to get out of their comfort zone. Then I think, this is something I've been thinking about lately, is if you think about companies, you start from a place of most comfort, right? You probably had domain experience in this product, so you started out building it. As your company gets more successful, you are increasingly asking yourself, 
to get out of your comfort zone because you're dealing with problems you never imagined. Like you were saying, a lot of people listening, you know, have 10 employees. When you start to have 10 employees, you have all sorts of personnel issues <laughs> and things you probably didn't want to deal with initially, you have company issues, and then you have business issues in addition to the initial product issues. And so if you don't embrace getting out of your comfort zone, you're going to get burned out, you know, quickly. And so I think people have to get over that hump of being able to get out of their comfort zone. That's the bottom line. A few final questions for you. I'm curious, as some person that a lot of people treat as a mentor, look up to, follow online, where are the edges of your comfort zone? Like, what are the conceptual ceilings that you feel like you're hitting against and going back and forth about whether it's even worth you bucking up and fighting that challenge or just settling into a comfort zone? Where do you feel that emotional resistance nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I am constantly at the end of my comfort zone. <laughs> so I mentioned we switched channels a bunch, right? These last two, one was TV, and the, the last one we're working on now is business development. So, you know, I hadn't really done any real public, public speaking like TV stuff before last year. And since I've been on maybe like two dozen or something national programs, and so that was definitely out of my comfort zone. You guys got tons of traction from the NSA stuff. And so I'm assuming yep. you were brought on a TV. What's it like going on TV? This is something almost so few people do. What's the story there? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because after a few times, like you quickly get used to it. But the first time was really nerve wracking. I mean, it, it's really kind of weird is because the shows are so well produced. There's a green room and you go and someone meets you and they bring you back to the green room. And then like two minutes before, they're like, let's mic you. <laughs> and they rush you into the studio at a commercial break. And so like you're just sitting there and like the other person's like talking to their producer or something. And then all of a sudden it's just like you're on. And then the things, your segments are like three minutes long. And so it goes by like instantaneously. And then every single time I've been like, what the hell did I say? I think I said something really stupid. <laughs> and then looked at it later and it's generally okay. But yeah, it, it's kind of surreal. To give you a second one, like the business development is what we're focused on now. And so we recently, you know, announced a deal with Apple that's going live in a couple weeks. Dealing with big companies. Well, what is that, that deal? I'm curious about what is, what is the deal with Apple? So the deal with Apple is we're going to be an option in the next version of Safari on iOS 8 and OS uh, X Yosemite. So coming out next month. You know, just to back up a second, for you know, small business owners like myself, it's crazy to even think about features on the product that you use all day long as a deal. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I think of like yeah. maybe product on a shelf in a store somewhere, but not an option on a browser. How do those deals even come about? Did they reach out to you or are you constantly pinging the Apple people saying, look at us over here? We were constantly pinging everyone. We are constantly pinging everyone <laughs> about look at us over here. That's this thing about big companies. As I was gonna say, is like it's definitely a, was out of my comfort zone to deal with them because it's just a whole different world, you know. And I, I had never really been in that world. The short answer is, yeah, they have to be part of their strategy to be want to include you. But there are lots of things you can do, as I've learned over the past year. This is more getting out of your comfort zone to kind of help that process along. You know, you need to go to find an advocate inside that company. Doing that is very difficult. And then, you know, helping to align a deal and, and, and push that forward. But yeah, I mean, it's been exciting. 
But yeah, every one of these waves has been something out of the comfort zone. And the company itself, you know, I had never run a company of this size and in managing people before. I had done mostly everything myself. To the comfort question, how often do you pick up the red phone and call Fred Wilson. What's your position on like building boards versus building boards of advisors versus informal mentors and people that are just have a going concern with your company? Do you have any sort of beliefs about that that's in stone or? So this is something I do have belief about and I've done very poorly before. I mean, I'm doing a better job now, but I'd say throughout my 20s, I did not seek mentorship, even though I probably should have and had people available. I've realized from angel investing that, you know, it really can make a big difference, like talking to people who have experience in what you're doing, which is obvious, but it just feels like you don't pick up the phone unless you know exactly who to call. And so I've tried to cultivate that a bit more. That said, I don't pick up the phone very much. <laughs> when you know Union Square put money into you guys, they didn't say like, oh, we sit on the board now and we meet every quarter and all this kind of thing. They just gave you the money and said, rock it out. So we have a board and we meet relatively frequently. Brad Burnham's on my board. He's very laid back. My board is me. You know, my uncle, who's also kind of an investor CEO guy and Brad, and, and it's pretty casual. There's a lot of conflicted advice here about boards. And so I'm not the most experienced with it. I think it's important to have a board personally and meet regularly to talk about strategic issues. Arguably, you could have a five person board and you should be having independent CEOs on your board. And I, I sit on some other boards like that, but I haven't done that with DuckDuckGo. Instead, I've opted to do it more informally, like you were saying earlier, just because I feel I like that better. But maybe that is me kidding myself. Sure. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. So I have one final question for you. For most of the people in my age range, Google is the most dominant brand force in our lives. You know, and apparently they know a lot about us and I'm in Gmail all day long. I'm on Google search all day long, YouTube, etc. I'm curious as to what do you know about Google that we don't? Like, what are some of the things that have been revealed to you about either the algorithm, about the way that that company works that maybe you didn't understand when you first started to get into their marketplace? Yeah, I mean, there are many. <laughs> One that is less obvious is something called the filter bubble. Google, since around like 2007, has gotten more and more personalized in their results. The Google Plus thing is kind of the most obvious, but you know, generally, when you search topics, they're serving you results they think you're more likely to click on. In some situations, that is troublesome, especially like doing political research or, or basically anything where you're, you want kind of an objective opinion on things in terms of a research setting. The canonical example is, which we actually did a study on, and the Wall Street Journal followed up and confirmed, was kind of during the election of Obama and Mitt Romney, they were surfacing way more Obama-related links than Mitt Romney-related links for people who you know, were searching any kind of Democratic thing, especially the term Obama. And so subtly, that is changing your perception of the issue. If you search abortion or gun control or something you're kind of interested in learning about, and all you're seeing is really Obama's point of view, it is subtly, you know, forming your opinion on that. And so that's kind of what the filter bubble is called. And, and DuckDuckGo, in that regard, breaks you out of your filter bubble because we're trying to show kind of the best links for everyone. And if you search something like climate change or something like that, you're going to get the same links as everyone else. So that's one thing. Second one is that search history doesn't go away. And you know, the law enforcement and not just 
law enforcement, but legal in general. So civil cases, divorce or things like that. All those searches can be legally requested. And so people have been kind of concerned with the government and rightly so because it's serious. But it's not just, you know, the federal government who can get access to those searches. They're legally requestable by anyone, really, if you can get a subpoena for it. And so that can come back to bite people. And it's not just in a personal setting, it's a corporate setting you know, patent searches or anything someone did at your company. Wow. That's happening more and more. So Google has a transparency report to their credit, but like every quarter, more and more requests happen. And that the reason is because it's slowly spreading that you can go get this data that it exists. That's kind of a second one. And then, you know, the third is something we talked earlier, which is just all that data they have on you from going to all those sites is starting to be used. So previously, you know, they hadn't monetize YouTube as an example, you know, that you said you're on, you know, and Gmail as much. And now they're really starting to push, you know, retargeting, which can be good if you're on the company side trying to get customers. It's right. like a be useful approach. But you know, in the last 18 months, more and more people have realized these ads following them around the internet. Yeah. And they generally don't like them. <laughs> and Google is, you know, one of the leaders of that space creating those ads following around the internet. Some people don't care, but a lot of people do. And that, that's kind of our perspective is, you know, we're not saying 90% of people are going to leave Google for these reasons. But, you know, certainly five to 10% care a lot. Excellent. Well, Gabriel, thanks. It's, it's been an hour. I appreciate so much you sharing your perspective on this. This has been pretty enlightening for me. So wish you also the best of luck with your book. We'll link up to everything in the show notes of this episode so people can go download it. Thank you very much for having me. Big thanks to Gabriel for sharing his time with us, sharing his insights about sales and marketing, about the Googles. And yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ch- check out this DuckDuckGo thing for a couple of days here and, and see how it changes my experience. Anyway, if you want to comment on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Click on that logo. Click on the link we've provided for you on your handset or tropicalmba.com slash DuckDuckGo. You can follow Gabriel and what he's up to at GabrielWeinberg.com or at Y-E-G-G on Twitter. I'll be back with the boss man next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.